morning's text comes to us from one of the epistles, specifically 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses, selected verses 10 through 18. The Apostle Paul is writing to this church, which is not that unlike Riverside, nor is Corinth too much unlike the town of Jacksonville. It was a port city, cosmopolitan city in Greece. The population was diverse religiously and racially. Uh, Different nations were there. Different religions were there. And Paul is writing to the new church in Corinth to remind them of their core values. May we listen and be reminded as well. Now, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you be in agreement and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same purpose. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there are quarrels among you, my brothers and sisters. And what I mean is that each of you says, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas, or I belong to Christ. Has Christ been divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to proclaim the gospel, and not with eloquent wisdom, so that the cross of Christ might not be emptied of its power. For the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, God decided through the foolishness of our proclamation to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks desire wisdom, but we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to the Greek Gentiles, but to those who are both called Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Consider your own call, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were powerful. Not not many were noble of birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Things that are not to reduce to nothing things that are so that one may boast only in the presence of God. This is the word of the Lord. 
turn on your television on Sunday mornings or visit around to other churches and you're likely to hear lots of good messages being proclaimed from a variety of preacher types dressed in everything from blue jeans and t-shirts to black robes and stoles to even more elaborate garments. And you'll also hear a variation of messages being proclaimed depending on what kind of church it is and you'll experience a different worship style as you participate. And one message you might hear may be one of morality, how we're called to follow clearly without question the Ten Commandments, which means no drinking, no adultery, and absolutely no dancing. Another might hammer home conversion week after week that we are called to accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior and thereby be converted. Another church might be offering a message of social uh, justice, which is to take care of the least of these, as Jesus did so often. And another church might be preaching about the power of positive thinking or the four basic fundamentals of faith, or like Joel Lee Osteen and Bishop T.D. Jakes about the human potential to succeed and get what we always wanted with God on our side. The Apostle Paul was dealing with a similar number of variations going on, but not outside of them, in the church itself, just five years after he had birthed it as a new church development in Corinth in Greece. This is why he wrote them this letter urgently. Now I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you be in agreement and that there be no divisions among you. This was before the Presbyterian Church was created. Or any. You know what I mean. There be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same purpose. The point is, there are divisions. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there are quarrels among you, my brothers and sisters. You know how it is. You find a nice piece of land near five points, you decide to start a church, you're backed by first church downtown, there's a little brown building on it, you hire some energetic preacher or leader to come in and start it, you get ten people to sign the charter and they start calling their friends and next thing you know you're filling up the little brown building and you got a church going. Soon it's too small, so you've got to figure out what you're going to do next. And there are some arguments and quarrels about what you should do next. Should you build an education building first, or should you build a sanctuary? And then they finally figure it out. And then sooner or later, that little church gets a sanctuary, and they're now working on their second pastor because the first pastor went on. And people are complaining that, you know, the second pastor's not really like the first pastor. I don't like his message as much as I like the first pastor's message. Besides that, he's bringing us in these new hymn books that we got to sing from, and I'm not sure about that either. Plus, he's talking about putting in an organ. Do we really need an organ? Soon all the people are in disruption, murmuring and clamoring about this and that and the other. There is no sense of common unity. Everything seems to be breaking apart. 
the high church people are standing guard around the traditional worship style while the young folks are flocking to the praise band in the fellowship hall. The mission people are at the throats of the evangelism people and the personnel committee is being chaired by a colonel from the Marine Corps. Right, Noah? This is the church that Paul is writing to just five years. And keep in mind that this isn't even a large church. They used to think it was a 200 or so member church. Now they're decided it's more like 50 or 60. That's a lot of pathology for a church of 50 or 60. I agree with Paul. I agree with Cephas. I agree with Apollos. I'm on Jesus' side. And Paul writes to them frustrated and disgusted, reminding them of the one thing that they have in common that they have apparently forgotten, the message about the cross. Christ crucified. Paul was up against it on the outside, too. Remember, the early church were Gentiles, for Paul at least, Gentiles who had converted to Judaism, who believed that Jesus was the Messiah, but they were still Jews. And the Orthodox Jews who hadn't yet converted to Christianity, it wasn't such thing then, but converted to understand that Jesus was the Messiah, were putting a lot of pressure on this early church to behave in, according to the Torah, the laws. Besides that, the Orthodox Jews couldn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah because God was way too big to become incarnate in flesh in this one person. And besides that, if Jesus was the Messiah, then the kind of Messiah they expected was the David King-like Messiah who they hoped would come again and make Israel great again. What Jesus did, of course, was come again and be crucified. Not the kind of Messiah they hoped for. And on the other side of that are the Greeks, the Gentile people in Greece. And they're saying there's no way that Jesus could be the Messiah because no God, no deity would take on human flesh. They were Gnostics and they believed that the material world was bad and the job of spirituality is to get us up out of this world of flesh and blood and death and so forth, to get us out of this into the seventh heaven. They were spiritual without being religious. They didn't want to mess with institutions and human structures because they were contaminated. Jesus writes to this church and reminds them that what they are banking on is just foolishness compared to the wisdom of God. The foolishness of God is far wiser, in fact, than their collective wisdom a thousand trillion times put together. As far as Paul was concerned, the only message worth preaching was Christ crucified. The core value, the heart of what the church is all about. We proclaim Christ crucified, he writes, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who understand the power and wisdom of God, And what Paul knew is if we stand at the foot of that cross, then our infighting and divisiveness would soon come to an end. I understand, especially these days, the conflicts in our world politically, racially, theologically, 
and all the outside threats that seem to be everywhere around us. I understand that the message about the cross might be seen as a downer. Preach about resurrection. Preach about good things. Don't preach about suffering and the cross. A study was done several years ago looking at two Catholic parishes in a similar neighborhood in San Diego. One was growing, the other was not. So they decided to find out why. Everything was basically equal. The priests were equal, the parking was equal, the uh, church buildings themselves were pretty much the same. What was going on? So they began to interview the people at the growing church to find out why they went there to that parish rather than to the parish that wasn't growing. And they all pretty much said the same thing, especially the young people. They, They said, you know, that church is sort of dark. They have a crucifix hanging in the chancel that is just way too realistic of a suffering Christ, and we'd rather that our children or even ourselves not have to face such suffering. The church they had decided to attend had a crucifix that was more nouveau art. It was a depiction of the symbol of Christ hanging from the cross, but not nearly as detailed. That one thing they decided separated those two churches. I understand that. Life is hard and there's a lot, a lot of stress and fear out there. We don't need to come to church to hear about a crucifixion. But Paul says that churches are only churches that proclaim that message. And he says that that is the message that keeps us together. When life throws its cross on our shoulders, as it inevitably will, those always week after week upbeat messages will only make us wonder, what's wrong with me? That my life is not perfect like seemingly everyone else's who claim to believe in Jesus. You see, this is the divine paradox, the cosmic paradox. Paul sees that the message of the cross is in fact the most hopeful, upbeat message we can proclaim. If we allow ourselves to stand under it long enough, we will see it. Painful? Yes. Suffering? Yes. But still the most hopeful and unifying message there is For Christians, it is our core value. It proves to us a lot, not the least of which is that the message of the cross is God's proof to us that we are loved unconditionally. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The message of the cross is that God loves us so much that God is willing to enter into our predicament even suffering in human form, going through exactly the same sufferings we go through, even unto death. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. The message of the cross tells us that there is nothing we can do or be that is so bad that we will be abandoned by God. For there is nothing worse than crucifying the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And yet it is in that moment that Jesus looks out and says to them, 
his crucifiers. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. It is the message of the cross that Paul lifts up in Romans. It says, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. But that's not all. You want upbeat? Listen to this. The message about the cross reveals to us the greatest hope of all. For it is a, the sign about how God takes this dark, critical, suffering moment and reverses it all and turns it into the most important cosmic moment of joy. The cross, now joy. That's what he means when he says God takes the things that are not. All of the darkness, all of the death, all the negativity, God takes that and reverses it and turns it into the things that are. Redeeming them and reconciling them and converting them into something more like the kingdom of God. Now that is upbeat. Let me share a personal story of how it works. And this may work or it may not. There's a lot going on here to make it work. We got some technology involved too. Thank you for your thoughts and prayers and condolences for our family. You may have heard last week that I was in Atlanta doing a funeral for one of our very close family friends. Well, the context is that when my first wife, Nancy, was killed in an automobile accident in 2001, Megan and Amanda, my two daughters, and uh, Emma, Amanda's best friend, were in the car. Emma was sitting next to Amanda in the back seat. Emma's mother is named uh, Lenny, and when, uh, after Nancy died, Lenny stepped in, became sort of a surrogate mom for the girls. She was always available. She was always calling them. She was just nurturing, bringing them into her house, letting them spend the night, feeding them every time she had a chance. 9-11 was six weeks after our accident, and we were all sort of basically numb, and they had to close the schools, uh, and, and I was at work, so Lenny went up, of course, and got our girls and took them to her house, where I met her later, and she just sort of kept all the feathers unruffled and cared for us. So I get a phone call two weeks ago today from hysterical Amanda saying that Lenny had died by drowning in her backyard pool. And immediately I thought, what can I do? Maybe I can go to Atlanta, and if they want me to do the service, I will, obviously. Uh, but I called Scott. I called the family. Uh, they didn't know what they were going to do. Uh, Scott let the young people, uh, 28, 29, and 31-year-old children, make the decisions. Lenny was clear she didn't want a church service for her funeral if she ever died. She was clear she wanted a celebration. She didn't want any remorse or crying or any grief. She wanted it to be upbeat. So they said to me, would you come and do the service, but we don't want it to be Jesus-like or religious and try to be upbeat and celebrative. And I said I'd be glad to. It wasn't in a church. It was at the Wahoo Grill in Decatur, Georgia, and they had a tent outside. And if you remember... Last weekend, there were incredible thunderstorms everywhere, and it like was complete downpour on top of us the whole time. Turns out Lenny loved thunderstorms, of course. It had to be. 
So there we were gathered in this tent, waiting for everybody to get there. There were three rows of tables with about 60 people in this tent. There was a buffet line over on the side serving coffee, orange juice, and uh, champagne if you wanted it. Everybody's milling around. Scott, uh, Lenny's late husband, is welcoming everyone. The children are talking. And finally, they looked at me, and it was time. And I got up and did my preacherly thing to try to make it celebrative. I read from the book of Ecclesiastes, from everything there is a season. I read from the 23rd Psalm, and I began to share how important it was to have faith and what this moment meant. Because I'd heard from family members that they didn't want to cry. Because one family member said, if one of us starts crying, everybody's going to start crying, and we may not stop. And so I wanted to share with them that it was okay to face the pain with this, to cry. And so I, I shared with them my own story when Nancy had died. We too were afraid to cry until Amanda started crying one day, and then all the rest of us, Megan and I, ran uh, up to Amanda, and we went into a sort of family hug, and it became known as the family hug. And Yates, the golden retriever, would always catch wind and run up and jump up on his back legs, not to be left out of the family hug. And we would all sit there and cry together in this incredible moment of hugging and grief. And inevitably, at the end of this, we would all break up by laughing. And I wanted to share with them that there are tears that we must face, but at the end, laughter. And that was basically my spiel. There was an interlude to play a song that we were to listen to. I had no idea what the song was. And so I said, the family has asked that we play this song. Uh, and I said, uh, let us just listen. And so the song began to play. It's called I'll Fix It by Coldplay. It turns out I knew the song. When you try your best and don't succeed, when you get what you want, but not what you need, when you feel so tired, but still can't sleep, stuck in reverse. At that time, I saw that the Holy Spirit was leading us. And I said, everybody stand up and join together in a family hug in whatever way you can. And everybody did and found their own little people and they hugged and single people found a family to hug. And there we were listening to this song, tears streaming down our faces. Anita and Megan and Amanda and uh, Amanda's husband, Joe, and Amanda's good friend. And, and I am there. We're all in this family hug, and tears are coming down our faces. And, and it was this like moment of excruciating pain and unbelievable presence of the Spirit of God. And I look up around us, and there's Scotty and his family. The, the grief still so present. It was everywhere in this amazing amazingly grief-filled hug together with tears streaming their eye, down their eyes. Uh, and, and as we're listening to this song and we begin to hear the words more and more, tears come streaming down your face 
when you lose something you can't replace, when you love someone but it goes to waste, could it be worse? And then he breaks out into this faster rhythm. We're in there, our heads down, and we're crying. And, and all of a sudden, the beat gets faster. And I looked around, and people's heads are starting to bounce up and down a little bit, and their toes are tapping. And, and what he's saying is, light will guide you home and ignite your bones and I will try to fix you. And light above or down below when you too in love you're too in love to let it go but if you never try you'll never know just what you're worth light will guide you home and ignite your bones and I will try to fix you I see a stream down your face when you lose something you cannot replace. Tears stream down your face. And at the end of this, before it had ended, we finally all figured it out. We all moved over to Lenny's family. And the whole tent of people were gathered together, reaching out in this family hug. When it was over, Megan, my now 30 one-year-old daughter looked at me 15 years after the accident and said, we made it, Dad. With a 15-year perspective, she could see them and where they were just starting that bad journey, but now see herself and us 15 years out of the out of the fact with the amazing power of God to rebuild life and family and in that perspective of 15 years, she could see it. We made it, Dad. With the perspective of eternity, we look at the cross and we understand.